Welcome back to the MERS Monday podcast. For more than 10 years, the Michigan political podcast. This week, Senate Minority Leader Jim Ananick, Jill Alper, Political Director for the Reproductive Freedom for All campaign, Political Consultant Dave Forsmark, and Vassar School Superintendent Dot Blackwell and Zero Eyes co-founder Matt Layeff check in during the post-election MERS Monday podcast. Now here's MERS editor Kyle Malin and MERS Samantha Schreiber. Thank you, Mark Bayshore. We've got a packed edition of the MERS Monday podcast ready for you. Senate Minority Leader Jim Ananick, Jill Elper. And we're also going to be learning about this new technology that the state Senate is thinking about uh, funding for schools statewide called Zero Eyes. You're supposed to uh, be able to track down weapons when they get into schools so the law enforcement can be uh, informed immediately. But first... We're bringing in uh, political consultant David Forsmark to talk to us a little bit about what happened with the Republican Party uh, last week. Dave, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Oh, glad to be here. So by now you've read the Paul Cordes memo. For our listeners' benefit, Paul Cordes is the chief of staff for Ron Weiser over at the Michigan Republican Party, and he wrote a four-page debriefing memo on what happened with the results. He put a heavy emphasis on the fact that Tudor Dixon did not rally the troops well enough, that uh, she didn't have the funding in order to compete, and the messaging was off, and as a result, uh, things kind of cascaded from there. What's your analysis? What, why do you think the Republicans didn't do very well uh, last week? Well, I'll pull a Joe Biden here and say two words. Donald freaking Trump. Donald Trump. All right. You're going to lay. All right. Tell us what happened here with Donald Trump. Well, Donald Trump. I mean, look, the, the MIGOP is a mess. And the idea that a uh, memo can come out from them blaming Tudor Dixon for what happened is pretty funny because they have a lot to do with why. Tudor Dixon was the last, I mean, was, was the least incredible, I guess, non-credible candidate standing at the end. It all goes back to how we selected everybody this year. Nobody legitimate wanted to run for governor because you had to spend a year publicly filleting Donald Trump. You had to sign on to all kinds of crazy stuff and then hope at the very last minute he wouldn't, you know, get notional and pull the rug out from under you after you spent a year of your life and millions of dollars trying to get this nomination. So we had nobody running uh, who had ever been elected to anything. We had only one person running who'd ever run, in, run a public agency and then he didn't make it through the, uh, you know, the through the petition process. Right. And then you had the next highest official was a was a planning commissioner who'd been on the steps of the Capitol yelling, this means war, come on in, but didn't go in himself. So what you're saying is that we didn't have a ticket on the Republican side that was going to appeal to independent voters who leaned Republican uh, with the top of the ticket, whether it's Tudor Dixon or their nominee for secretary of state and attorney general. Well, no, no, not bring in the independents. Um, they, a lot, I know a lot of Republicans voted Libertarian or left that blank or even voted for one of the other two candidates just so they'd, they'd rather be able to yell about Nestle for four years and get blamed for Matt DiPerno's madness. So how can you blame Donald Trump for the losses in the state House and the state Senate races when he didn't have as much to do with that after the primary and most of his candidates that he supported lost? By there, he contributed to the atmosphere. But, I mean, let's go back to this memo for a minute. Um, somebody asked me, you know, if there was any use for it. And I said, well, you can't print it out anything soft enough to be toilet paper. So, no. 
I mean, the idea that somebody from that organization is pointing figures, fingers at one candidate, I mean, that's just a joke. That place is run by Mishan Maddock. Ron Weiser doesn't do anything but write checks. We're back to Donald Trump. We're back to everybody. The independents had plenty of reason to think that we we're a bunch, bunch of nuts. And then the last 10, 15 days, here comes Donald Trump putting himself back in the process again and making things all about him. If you look at, at states where they had normal Republican candidates, they did really well. But we didn't have normal Republican candidates. And then when we did, NRCC, the HRCC, and the SRCC were such a joke this year. And then when he only when he mentions Trump, all he mentions is, oh, there's a war between the donors and Trump, as though the donors should just go, oh, hey, let me write you a big check, even though I don't believe in one single thing you're doing or your candidates at the top of the ticket. It's their money, dummy. You got to appeal to them. Here's, here's names that should have been in that memo. Lauer, Mitchell, Wentworth, Barb Listing, Michon Maddock, Ron Weiser, DiPerno, Caramo. I mean, look at look at that primary process. Zolik. I mean, Prop 3. Uh, and Prop 3, what what the heck was that anti-candidate? Uh, too confusing. I mean, what it, what what came in second place? Don't worry, honey. Uh, you're being hysterical. Calm down. I mean, give me a break. Fred Zolik spent a million bucks on ads um, defending the board of canvassers because he told, and I know this from somebody in the room, he told them it would influence the Supreme Court. No, what he wanted to do was make sure he at least got a million bucks of uh, commission off a million bucks of spending in case the Supreme Court ruled in his favor and he wouldn't have an anti-proposal to run. That's the kind of stuff we were ruled by vendors who check boxes and are horrible at their job on every level in the state but it still comes down to the fact that Donald Trump settled us with a process that gave us a bunch of crazy people at the top. I want to uh, just read something talking about Donald Trump. His Save America PAC had sent out a fundraising uh, email on Election Day, and it said, Donald Trump's unprecedented success in 2022. It says here that President Trump raised nearly $350 million this election cycle for Republican candidates and party committees. And yet later in this memo, it writes, he writes that a million dollars went to Tudor Dixon and Matt DiPerno to share. So he raised $350 million right. and Tudor Dixon and Matt DiPerno share a million dollars. So where did the yeah, other $349 million go? It didn't go to candidates not named Trump. He says, uh, so he spent $4 million in Arizona, $3.6 million in Georgia, $3.4 million in Pennsylvania, $2.4 million in Ohio, and two point one in Nevada. The end. I mean, you add all that up, and maybe you get to $20 million, and he said he raised three hundred and fifty. In some of those races, he's bragging about being a rounding error. So he hardly spent $20 million on, on all these states, and yet he claimed to raise $350 million for what? Well, and he's in the news all the time. So you got all the, you got all the downside and none of the, none of the upside basically is what the candidates were stuck with, but it still came down to the, I think the selection process was where he, he really was the biggest problem. I feel like looking across this ticket, though, I mean, you would expect to see a lot of ads from Republicans about, you know, economics and taxes. But instead, we saw a lot of literature come out that was about transgender youths, uh, the sexualization of our children. Um, Looking at it now, did those issues prove to be a waste of time for Republicans? They needed to be part of a mix. 
I mean, let's look at one of these race. I, look, I, I know this race because it's my guy, but Dave Martin was supposed to be a close race. You know, we won by 10%. We did putting pre- parents back in control of education a little bit, but we also talked about the student loan thing. I mean, Dave had a bill that basically mandates that every kid who graduates gets information about student loans and trade schools and what what it pays to be a cop, what it pays to go in the military, all these paths. All the Republicans voted for it. Student loans are a thing that everybody's mad about, the student loan stuff, but nobody but us ran ads on it. But then Steve Mitchell's telling us that the race is close and they dump a half a million bucks over here on irrelevant stuff. And we knew we were winning big, but they then Bob Howie downriver, they don't spend any money on him till two weeks out and uh, he loses by less than 1%. And he's an ideal, you know, normal person. He's an architect. He's got a backhoe in his back garage. Did they do anything on skilled trades? They have him talking to the camera saying, hey, here's what it's like to try to hire people. No. So when I looked at what the Democrats did on, on their ads, their third-party ads, they actually had something to do with their candidate. When I looked at the ads coming in from third-party, whether it was federal, state, or, or federal or state, House or Senate, they were all generic. It was some vendor who'd never met the candidate, threw in four Republican talking points, and had give, been given one talking point on the opponent. Um, you look at the Democrats did for Kildee and Slotkin versus what the the Republicans did for Barrett and Young, and it's embarrassing, the difference. Because it was just a boilerplate ad campaign, is what you were saying, and it was not tailored to them specifically. Exactly. Republicans have gone toward boilerplate and away from personalization for at least 20 years, but for the last three or four cycles, it's been worse than I've ever seen it. So what were the red meat issues that should have been tossed out out the door. Let's look at Gretchen Whitmer. I have never seen a, a successful candidate with that high of a strongly negative. When any poll, you you know, usually it's somebody's got a two to one positive and you're not thinking that's very good. I mean, she's almost 50 50. In the, in the strongly negatives, I've seen it in the 40s. I mean, come on, man. You know, your, her ceiling should be 51 with a perfect campaign and a disaster of a of an opponent, and especially in a year that's supposed to be the red wave. But, you know, and I know people who are in on these phone calls from the NRCC, and they were kind of complaining about the content. And they're going, hey, look, red wave, red wave, red wave, just put the material out, red wave. You know, they thought their boilerplate would carry the day because of the red wave. Who could the Republicans have put up to beat her? And not just from the slate of candidates who ended up filing or trying to run. Who do you think could have beat Gretchen Whitmer with the proper campaign apparatus? Well, frankly, I think Tom Barrett would have been a good candidate. I think Ken Horn would have been a good candidate. Just anybody legit, anybody like that. Somebody in the House, you know. Tom Leonard? Just somebody. Tom Leonard would have been a good candidate. Heck, Ryan Berman would have been fun. But it wouldn't have been, it would have been, hey, there's somebody who won a blue district twice. I don't think Tudor Dixon thought she was going to be the nominee when she got in. I mean, I think she was burnishing her conservative media credentials. Let's do a Larry Elder. Let's get some some publicity. Let's. She had to be the most surprised person than anybody to to be in that situation with five people getting, you know, taken off the ballot, and then and then those Perry Johnson ads. I mean, all the Perry Johnson and, and then Rinky blows up by only appealing to Trump for the last six weeks of his campaign, as though it was he was speaking directly to Donald Trump. I mean, the whole thing was crazy. Looking ahead to the Republican Party chair race, 
Who do you think would be the best person to bring the party together? I haven't a clue. You know, I, I mean, I'd like to see a Barrett or a or a Berman or somebody who's 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 been on the receiving ends of their incompetence, but who can still maybe you know herd the cats. But it's, it's got to be it's going to be the same. The problem is, I'm not sure your delegate crowd right right now isn't more on the wild side than the people who put DePerno and Caramo at the top of the ticket. I mean, I've seen, I've seen what's happening in these County parties and I haven't seen anything, but, but Trumpy's in charge. I mean, when you think about the next phase for the Republicans in Michigan, I mean, is there any hope or what would need to happen to kind of curtail some of Donald Trump and his MAGA followers influence in Michigan? The, here's the thing. It's, it's all about candidates. Okay, it's all about candidates. It's always, always been about candidates. And these people who act like the party is the end all and be all are people who, I guess, they work their whole lives for paper money and they never, you know, you accumulate paper money and you don't have any goods. The, the, the party is a means to an end. It's a medium of exchange. And it's going to have to be candidates. The party is not an end of itself. I spent 30 years not caring about county parties and 30 years and I don't know, Kyle, if I worked I probably worked in 25 counties, maybe more. I have never once seen a county party make a difference in an election. Not once. It's always um, about getting a candidate that connects with the district. Sure. Genesee County has a famously horrible county party. Okay. You got a chairman who convicted of something, uh, in the, uh, this crazy thing in the middle of, uh, middle of everything. He recruited candidates against incumbent state reps. Genesee County hasn't had two incumbent state reps in in the history of our constitution. And he recruited primary candidates against both of them. And they both sailed through the general election with flying color. And, and he was actually, I think he recruited somebody against, against Begol and the Genesee part of that too. So all of those people won because they were all good, normal candidates who ran on their own strengths and took the issues and applied it to them and how they were good at it. Could Prop 3 have been defeated with a different campaign, Dave? Yeah. Could, could Gretchen Whitmer have lost in Michigan with a better campaign and a better candidate? Yeah, absolutely. So And in Prop 2, Prop two, it would have taken nothing, but somebody going out there saying Prop 2 uh, invalidates voter ID laws, period. That's an 80% issue with people. Instead, Prop 2 was allowed to say, we're putting voter ID in the Constitution. Well, yeah, you are. You're saying it's not necessary. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for the analysis. As always, I know that we can uh, we can count on you to give us the unvarnished opinion of David Forsmark. And uh, you didn't disappoint uh, political consultant um, David Forsmark. Thank you very much. Sure thing. Joining us now on the podcast is the chief political strategist from the Proposal 3 campaign, Jill Elper, old friend of the MERS podcast. Great to see you again, Jill. Great to see you, too. So Proposal 3 was a yes, and uh, you got to be a little relieved after uh, uh, what had to be a very long and uh, strenuous campaign season, yes? Yes, indeed. Very relieved and elated with the result. So tell our listeners when the campaign really got started and what your involvement of the campaign was. Sure. Started mid-July, um, 
I was a strategist. I, I worked with the team to figure out how we would get to 50% plus one. <laughs> so using people time and money um, to get to a majority of the vote. And what was the strategy? What, what were you trying to get at in order to get to that 50 plus one? Yeah, well, there were a majority and are a majority of voters who support abortion rights and women's health care. Uh, our strategy, though, was really to talk about restoring Roe, which is what the initiative does. People were angry about losing a fundamental right. And our job was to make voters aware that there was something that they could do about that and then to debate the policy with the no side and to ensure that we came up with enough votes to win on the back side. Well, we were speculating um, two, three weeks out, you know, that you were 55 percent. Was that going to be enough? Um, It seemed like and I was we talked about this leading up to the election. There was real no way of under or, or of understanding the true depth of support of the pro-choice movement in this in this particular election. When did you know for certain you weren't going to have an issue? Uh, well, election night, <laughs> that's always <laughs> how we think about things. Um, you know, there was a, a stubborn four or 5% out there. We were actually closer to the 50% mark. We were, you know, um, between hovering sort of between 50, uh, 53, 54% of the vote. But, um, it shifts a lot more in a ballot initiative. We were nonpartisan and voters can um, be deterred by the other side based on any set of information because you do see this language on the ballot that's not always easy to interpret. And so there are people who may or may not know that proposal three is about the issue. They may or may not know um, what yes or no means. and it can be really hard to reach people, particularly the types of voters who were more likely to be yes on three proposal voters. So uh, we never really felt we were out of the woods until the votes uh, started to become counted. And we saw that we were winning in unlikely places like Gogeba County, Um, you know, but we were winning in unlikely places, um, but up in Traverse City area out west in the central parts of Michigan, Really, you know, we thought those independents and those moderates moved in our direction and that we had held our Republicans and that we were, you know, we were we were going to make it probably around 11 or 12 o'clock that night. One of the one of the articles that uh, that we covered was uh, I think Grebner estimated what, Kyle, between 20, 10 and 20,000 new female voters entered this election cycle. Was there a concerted uh, messaging campaign effort on, on, behalf, on your part to reach those to motivate those? Uh, talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah, we have very sophisticated modeling, um, which allowed us to determine the likelihood that someone would be a, a voter for this initiative. So not just on the issue, but for the initiative. Um, and we were really slicing and dicing and we were paying attention to those new registrants. Michigan had the highest number of new female registrants post the Dobbs decision of any state in the country. So we thought it was likely that they would be activated by this issue one way or another. We didn't take them for granted, but as we dug in and started communicating with people by text, by phone, uh, by digital, you know, in the two-way forms, um, on the doors especially, we were getting that feedback and, and that made us feel just a little bit better. 
just taking a look at the final results. For our listeners' benefit, if you don't know the final percentages, the yes vote was victorious on the Reproductive Freedom for All proposal, 56.66% to 43.34%. But another number that I wanted to focus on right now here, Jill, is the total ad spend. As I'm looking at our um, ad impact uh, final numbers here, they have the no campaign actually having outspent y'all 25.7 million to 21.9 million. Now, those are your numbers. Uh, What did your numbers show? Did you guys get outspent by the no side? You know, it's it's really, it's, it's very hard to tell. I will say no disrespect to add impact, but they use algorithms and a little bit of looking at the stations. That was one thing that was a little frustrating during the election to see that number get picked up and so widely used. Um, by the media. We have um, actual tracking that we do, um, at least at the TV stations um, are required by law to to the FCC to report their spending. Um, And so um, we saw them more evenly spending um, with us, um, probably, you know, more um, in the, you know, $18 million plus uh, on what we could track um, OTT forms of tap, tablet spending um, and things like that are, are digital, are harder to track. Um, we also saw them spending more, frankly, in those forms of media than they reported in their report. Um, oh. There were there were a lot of organizations also that sprung up here and there um, to uh, support the no side. Lots of campaign finance reports filed, um, again, because spending appeared to be more than the dollars um, the dollars reported. Uh, so don't really know what they spent, but it looked like we were spending pretty evenly. And then at the end, we were able to place more and we may have bested them by, you know, a, a couple of million dollars. What message do you think seemed to work on your side? What, what do you think really drove the numbers when you guys put it up? Oh, you know, look, it was extraordinarily complicated. We went through a number of phases. First, we had to sort of explain the situation um, because believe it or not, it took the entire summer into the early fall for people really to absorb the fact that they had lost this right. Then we had to educate people on the fact that there was a 1931 ban. Um, Even as is, um, we really only educated a little over 50% that there was that threat, despite all of the spending and all the messaging. We had to clarify for people what the ballot initiative did Then we had to fight back some of the attacks from the other side with our prosecutors. And then we um, needed throughout um, and early in the campaign to show that doctors and nurses were on board with proposal three. And then at the end, wrote in a panoply of other, um, you know, types of endorsers to make it so that voters could trust what proposal three was offering. So it wasn't one thing, it was a series of things but underneath all of that was driving home that we needed to restore the rights under Roe. Were you surprised by the amount of money that the No campaign put out, uh, the Catholic Church and, and Right to Life? No, not not. not you were expecting you were expecting it. Absolutely, you know, Right to Life in Michigan history has always, you know, shown up to play, right? And they always win pretty much any fight that there is. Um, the Catholic Church is very serious about this issue and as well resourced. Um, so we we knew that they would be there. And a lot of that spending too went accounted, unaccounted for um, because the church is able to campaign and spend in ways that are 
that are not all, you know, requiring legal reporting. Any concept in terms of dollar amount, what doesn't go unreported? I mean, just to get you. Okay. Yeah. I mean, a 32 page booklet went out to parishioners that alone had to be extraordinarily expenses from expensive from the archdiocese of Lansing um, with all kinds of false claims and whatnot, but it was just too hard to track. What do you think the anti side, the no side did that was particularly effective as far as the the media goes? Yeah, I, I guess I should first though mention that Michigan Voices, Planned Parenthood of Michigan and ACLU did a lot of things right. And it was extraordinarily um, inspiring to see them get this going before even um, the Supreme Court overturned the decision because it took months and months of work, really a year and a half to develop policy and to get people in place to do the signatures. And all of that was well underway. They were probably two thirds the way to qualifying um, when the decision happened. So first hats off to them. I think the other side, what did they get right? I mean, they really sought um, to mislead people (laughs) and they did a very um, good job of that um, in a sense um, to make this the, 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 the Donnybrook that it was even with people being so much um, on the side of reproductive freedom. And they threw out outrageous claims, claims that were not anywhere close to true um, to create you know, confusion. Um, but there was nothing confusing about it for voters um, once they heard from both sides and they understood what the issue was. So um, you know, they kind of you know, kept throwing the punches, if you will, but they never landed one um, through a whole series of you know, mistruth, or, or, or just malarkey. <laughs> Do you think that the margin with which the governor was victorious had something to do with the fact Proposal 3 was on the ballot and abortion access was also in front of voters at the time? Do you think that that had something to do with the governor's margin? Perhaps. You know, you never totally know. We didn't pull things in that way. What I can say is that she ran an incredible race and she ran on her record, right? Voters were going to hold her to account for the roads and all kinds of things, the schools. She made a number of promises in 2018. The issue of abortion certainly had a lot of power in it based on your previous question. It brought people into the process, right? We saw through voter registration and the ballot initiative helped keep um, that issue at the fore. It was Democrats, Republicans and independents that put the issue on the ballot and helped the issue win. That was the governor's position um, as well. And so I'm sure there were some some synergies there, um, but this ticket and and the party, um, it appears, really stood on its own and voters rejected um, the the real the real extremism um, that the Republican Party has um, adopted, including the election denying, you know, that was that was going on as well. So um, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure proposal three didn't hurt. Let me put it that way. Um, but they were two so totally different, but mutually reinforcing campaigns. I wanted to ask you something I brought up during our webinar, and that is, I understand the strategic reasons why why your campaign and why the campaign for Proposal 2 wanted to move this stuff into the Constitution. There's Clearly, there's a political advantage that protects the policy. Um, but it also puts a lot of pressure, I think, on, on the question that's going to automatically be generated in 2024, and that's the Constitutional Convention question. Have you guys talked about that? Have you looked at that? Any concerns about that? I mean, not... I- 
not in the context of this, maybe any of the groups I mentioned have, but it's not a conversation that I've had with them. Um, and I know for years people have been talking about that issue and nothing comes to the fore. So maybe right. this will be the moment, but this is this was a totally focused effort on reproductive freedom. Okay. Jill, I know most of our listeners know that you were involved in the Jennifer Granholm, uh, one of her campaigns, and uh, you have been involved in uh, gubernatorial and high-stakes elections for many years. What strikes you about Governor Whitmer? Is there something in particular that is very striking about her as a candidate and as a uh, political leader? Sure. And I'll say I was the strategist in both of Governor Granholm's elections. Um, I didn't live in Michigan for the first one. Uh, Governor Whitmer, and I'm not going to compare them either. I mean, you know, I work with women all across the country uh, um, who are looking at or running for governor, who've run for governor for almost two decades. Um, I'll just say, as a leader, uh, Governor Whitmer is really fearless. I think she just um, sticks to her guns. Um, she's really able to multitask. Um, she's got a great sense of humor. And, um, you know, she was able to get over 900 bipartisan bills passed into law, um, even during, you know, a re-election campaign, you know, big things were getting done. Um, so I just have to sort of hand it to her at being both an effective and political leader as well as substantive leader and, and one with a lot of endurance um, and, and a lot of persistence. Do you think she has what it takes to be a presidential candidate? <laughs> oh, boy. Um, you know, that. It's really up to her. You know, I've actually done eight presidential campaigns as well. Um, you know, I, I that's what I was doing more before I, I married Michigan um, in 2004 and then continued some of that work but in a very different way. And, you know, i sure she's got it. She's been the governor of the state of Michigan. And if this is something um, that she wants to do, she's got, you know, the, the, the guts, the savvy and the record to do it. Um, so just as much as anybody else. One more question for us political observers as we're watching this. If she were to make movements in that direction, uh, what do you think we should be looking for? Oh, geez. <laughs> um, very uncomfortable about about um, about saying that. I mean, you know, you already see it. It's I, I, I think, you know, any good, thoughtful leader um, sits back and takes a rest. But, you know, national the national conversation has started. Um, you know, we have a Democratic president. Um, and despite um, everything the country has been through, he's done a very good job. I think the election results prove that people were expecting a red wave. There wasn't a red wave. Um, and that's for a lot of reasons. Um, so first and foremost, you know, there's there's a president in the chair. I think should he make a decision, um, you know, not to, not to stay course, um, there are already plenty of people outside of our state who have recognized her leadership. Um, and so I think that's that sort of, Step one is any good leader is going to listen and see if they want the kind of leadership that they've offered. Um, so I think it starts outside of Michigan, frankly. Um, and I'm, I'm just going to leave it there and also thank President Biden for his good work. All right. Well, that is Jill Elper, and she was the chief political strategist for Proposal 3, Reproductive Freedom for All. And we do appreciate you being on the MERS podcast. And good to see you again, Jill. Good to see you both. Thanks so much for your journalism. A great conversation there with Jill Alper, and uh, she didn't really want to address the presidential thing, John, but it, it's hard to avoid, and she, she said Governor Whitmer has what it takes to be a presidential candidate. Sounds like she was in the national news quite a bit this weekend. 
Oh, she was she was all over the place. Uh, I think I saw her on a lot of national uh, uh, newspaper sites. Uh, she also appeared with Dana Bash on. It's not Face the Nation. I don't remember what the CNN show is, the State of the Union or whatever their their, their show is. But yeah, she's getting an awful lot of coverage. And and um, there was even a column that said, uh, "Hey, Ron DeSantis, you weren't the big winner Gretchen Whitmer was." I don't know where I saw that, but there's a lot of talk uh, out there uh, that um, she could be uh, one of the uh, leading Democratic candidates uh, for president. The Washington Post, NBC News, Reuters. I mean, everybody's got Governor Whitmer mentioned now, and especially since she won by double digits when it was supposed to be really close. Uh, Yeah, Midwestern state and was still victorious, a state that Trump won in 2016. Yeah, she she can't be hating that coverage. I got to say the next thing we got to look for, John, is if she starts making kind of these circuits. And I'm not talking about just going to Iowa or something like that. I think that'd be too obvious. I think we got to look to see if she's going to be the guest speaker at, I don't know, the North Carolina Democratic Party fundraiser or, you know, the uh, Georgia Democratic Party fundraiser. I mean, just places that are not anywhere near us to see how she does in front of an audience that is not Midwestern. Yep, we'll have to keep our eyes peeled. <laughs> All right, let's move on to our next interview. Joining us now on the podcast is the Senate Minority Leader, Jim Ananick. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. Well, what a what a uh, it had to have been a very rewarding experience on uh, Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, as you were looking at the board and uh, seeing that the Democrats for the next session are going to have 20 votes after being in kind of the phone booth caucus back when you all had 11. Tell me what that was like to see the 20th one go up. Um, it was amazing. Uh, and even if you know, you remember this, Kyle, half the term I had 10 members because uh, we, you know, we had a few that were in situations that um made them leave the office early um so we we basically doubled um low point to the high point um i will be honest uh 20 i got a phone call from curtis because i was laying down at five o'clock in the morning so i didn't actually get to see the board at 20 but i saw it at 19 and uh even that was pretty exciting it was just you know some some of you might have seen the picture that um circulated around social media curtis and i arm wrapped around him looking at the board uh it was just a culmination of a lot a lot of blood sweat and tears over the last uh you know 10 years for me uh eight for for curtis and and, and four of those years working with david knesic when nobody else believed us we just kept the plan together and just you know kept our heads down and just worked so when you say work i mean what was it recruitment of quality candidates raising money to kind of tell our listeners what that means yeah, that's a good question because it's it's you know uh, I've been doing it like day in and day out. It's it's uh, I, I will have a tendency to skip to the third or fourth chapter accidentally, and I think it is important to start at the beginning. So I got elected in May of 2013, that's special when um, my uh, senator became a county clerk, and I enjoyed the caucus. I was with Gretchen; she was a great uh, minority leader, a good a good mentor. Um, you know, the members uh, were, were 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 fun to work with. But we had, and I, I don't mean this isn't a criticism, we had sort of a super minority, super minority mentality, like almost as if we were resigned to the fact that we were just going to never going to win the Senate. And I'm just not wired that way. I'm just I'm just a super competitive person who just doesn't I don't take no for an answer. So I started out um, and one of the first things I did was 
we helped, I, I got put on the campaign team, we started recruiting candidates and I served, I just served with Sean McCann, uh, basically for two, two and a half years. And he and I sat down every Wednesday at that old uh, Senate Bigby, the one that's now closed. And we'd go over things. He'd give me a list of things he needed me to do. I'd tell him what he should be doing. Uh, obviously in that election, we came up short. We didn't, we, we lost that race by 60 votes. Um, but, um, you know, when Curtis basically cleared his primary in that year, uh, he and I sat down early on and said, we're going to try to do a two cycle approach to win this thing. Uh, and then when Kinesic won his primary, he was happy to join us. And so we had three of us sort of went from me to, to, to me and Curtis, to me and Kinesic. Uh, and we had a, we had a caucus full of second term members that were relatively checked out. Uh, they were good members, but they weren't politically active at all. So the burden of raising money fell on David as finance chair, Curtis as the campaign chair, and me sort of as a very political leader. And we just ch chipped away. We just raised more money than we'd ever raised before, uh, even with 11 members. Uh, raised about $8 million for the 2018 cycle. And we were very conscious about who we were going to try to recruit. We had to fit the district. Uh, interest groups weren't, they were important, but they weren't going to just dictate who our, our candidates were. We were going to recruit candidates that we thought would match up the district well. Uh, and then we had a good year. 2018 was a good year for everybody. And we, we won five seats, the most since Watergate. Uh, and we instilled in, the, in this caucus a, you know, the only way to stop having, you know, the kind of session days we had a lot this term was to win. And uh, we instilled a very strong caucus giving program. I think I've, I think I've reached one point. I know we've talked about it before, Kyle, but I think I'm, I'm about $1.5 million I've given to the caucus um, over my, over my nine and a half years. Now that's far and away more than anyone else has ever done. Uh, Curtis has given hundreds of thousands himself. Uh, Stephanie and Winnie having a leadership fight all the way to the end definitely didn't hurt because uh, it made them all <laughs> raise, continue to raise money. Um, and uh, Kinesics were, can't go, uh, uh, he, he was there only with us for a term, but what he helped us do uh, as a just a very diligent finance chair, uh, probably that military, the Marine in him, um, he was, he can't go, we wouldn't be where we were at if he wasn't part of that first, uh, the trio we had. And, and then we just recruited really good candidates in this election and we developed a plan. And I think for the first time ever, um, it's going to sound uh, silly to say it, but, um, no matter what they did, the Republicans, we didn't bite. We just, we ran the program. We raised, I think $26 million, which is a, by far and away, a, a record, uh, for Dems for sure, possibly for, um, for the legislature. I can't speak for other, um, that's hard and soft. And we just ran it. We just ran a strong program. Um, you know, we recruited great staff both in 2018 and for this cycle. Um, I had very little control over the 14th cycle. I, I wasn't even part of the campaign leadership team by the time the election was over with. Uh, but I just worked with candidates. Uh, and then for eight years, we just made sure everything we, we did that wasn't stateside, it was the political side, was very part, was very uh, disciplined, was part of a plan. And uh, we had to be very careful with our money. We couldn't waste it. Um, so we didn't. You know, I mean, obviously the Republicans, I think, funded uh, Unlock Michigan and a few other things. We couldn't afford to do that. Now, we would support the House in midterms because it's a responsibility, I think, to do that. But we're not, not at the level of, uh, you know, it was 50,000, 100,000 each time. It wasn't much more than that uh, because we also knew that some of those people would be candidates of ours. So everything was mm -hmm. strategic. Everything was uh, part of an overall plan that Curtis and I developed with our staff. Uh, and then we just executed. And there was never excuse. It, it, you know, a little bit like the Goodfellas movie. I, don't, I can't say the line, but it's, 
you know, oh, your uh, your oven broke. F you, pay me. It was we had a plan, and no, <laughs> ain't no excuse for raising money. Get back and knocking on those doors. Get back and you've got to sell that candidate to run, and that's what we did. A quick question, Senator. Uh, obviously, the planning was a huge part of it. Can you talk a little bit about how important was the the, the new boundaries, oh, and how yeah. much of a role did Prop Three play for you? I would I would say Prop Three um, was was instrumental, uh, and also to a somewhat to a lesser degree, but not completely, was Prop Two of that year, where they had some of the tools that allowed for. I mean, look at Ann Arbor, uh, Grand Rapids, East Lansing. They were registering voters same day registration and voting up until three, four o'clock in the morning. Um, and, you know, obviously there's a secure process to make sure those folks are who they say they are, but, uh, you know, that couldn't have happened in the, in the years past. So both those tools that allowed for, you know, for actually voters deciding who the elected officials are or not. Um, in 2018, I couldn't win the majority of the, the day of filing. All I could do was get as close. I got about as close as you could get. Um, you probably couldn't squeeze another seat out with those maps. Uh, and we've looked at the numbers, like how many votes we got versus how many votes they got uh, and the percentages. I mean, it's about as close. It's, it's about they've made about as perfect a map as you can make. We got slightly more votes than they did. And we have slightly more seats than they did. Uh, in 2018, we got significantly more votes than they did and came back 2016 to 22. So it worked. And there's no question about it. And there was groups out there trying to uh, organize citizens to make sure that citizens were expressing what they wanted. And that, that work helped that we weren't a part of that, but that work uh, was critical too, because you had to, um, you had to unrig the system. Um, and they, 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 they drove a bunch of maps. Um, this is probably the best one for us. And I was glad to see this is the one that got um, approved. Um, but no, so I, I, I can't, un, I can't undersell how important 2018 prop three was it, uh, voters, not politicians. Um, and they, and, and, and you know, people act like it was some sort of dem group. They did not want our involvement. They wanted it to be citizen-led. I mean, I remember uh, a guy knocking on my door who lives a neighbor of mine asking me the questions, and I'm like, I can answer these, but you're basically about politicians. I'm like, I'm one of those politicians. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I can answer the question, but you know me. You know, you know, you know I'm your senator. And he just laughed and said, I know. I got to ask these questions. I said, yeah, I think you guys are doing great work. I mean, uh, but I wasn't involved at all in that. Um, but I think it worked out really well. You know, there's a lot of exciting state Senate races, but I'm thinking about the fourth state Senate race of Darren Camilleri. Uh, Republicans tried to catch fire in this district by targeting Camilleri on transgender youths. And, you know, that's something that we saw this election cycle, that kind of being becoming a big issue for Republicans. Do you think targeting trans youths was part of Republicans' downfall this year. I do. I do. Um, I mean, I'm hesitant to say it because I want them to keep doing it. Um, although I don't want them to target vulnerable children. I think it's kind of pathetic but um, and mean. But um, I, I, they, have, they are so used to winning primaries and election being over with that they had a harder time. We have to win. We have to convince, in the past, we had to convince Republicans and independents to vote for us at numbers of which was almost impossible. That's why we couldn't win the uh the that's why we couldn't get beyond where we were at they don't understand that yet they still think you know just saying the word defund the police and 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 you know bathrooms and and uh athletics i mean they honestly believe they had a shot at camillary um and he won by almost 10 points i mean i i don't know how you can walk away i mean i i would definitely fire their pollster um i think all polling is a little questionable now you have to do what you can i mean our polling was much more, I think, accurate than theirs was. 
uh, in 18, uh, not, not necessarily so much. We had, um, um, uh, we had Poppy Hernandez winning against John Bumstead and Dana Polhanke losing against Laura Cox. And obviously that flipped, uh, by good margins. I mean, Dana won by, by a big margin. We invested in her. We, we, we obviously still invested in making sure she won. But if you would have asked me on election night, who was going to win, our poll suggested something different. So, um, sorry about that. I think my dog didn't let me, um, mention, uh, mentioned and uh you maybe you maybe you can't hear her but she's she's barking in the background sorry um <laughs> no it, it's um i think the social the, i think they were much more they were much more uh thinking the social sort of extreme social um issues were going to be uh more powerful than they were uh, i just didn't i just didn't it didn't resonate with people but they sure tried it now i also you know the amount of money spent by De- democrats is quite historic as well but looking into the next four years i'm jumping ahead here are you going to be willing to spend the same amount of money to protect incumbents when Republicans are out for vengeance? Um, that's that, that, that might have to be for the next week's uh, podcast. I will not be spending any money. <laughs> I, have, <laughs> I have no role in that. Uh, I would, if, if asked, and I have a number of meetings scheduled with Winnie and some of the team, uh, I will encourage them to, to take advantage of the majority and the ability to raise money. And we've been able to, if you look at our, our what we did was we, we had traditional donors, you know, obviously labor, trial lawyers. Uh, we're never going to do as well in Lansing as the majority party. So we knew we'd raise some money. We did better than we, we normally did. And then uh, through help through Mallory uh, McMorrow, she helped us reach out to some of the, the larger new uh, Democrats didn't used to have big donors. We were always sort of the, the labor, trial lawyers, small donors. Um, now there are Democrats with money that want to invest and they want to invest in Michigan. I think they'll want to invest again in 2026. Uh, we worked really well with Mallory on that. She was a great teamwork, a teammate. Um, I have no, I mean, nothing but praise for the work she did and she did it. Um, she could have made this all about her, um, because the national world was making a big stink about her and she always included other caucus members and always made it about the team. Uh, and then low dollar donors are coming in for us at a rate uh, the last two elections, a little bit in 18, wasn't as prevalent in 18. Uh, we would kill them on donors. I mean, we'd have, they'd have a, they'd have a, a filing with seven donors. We'd have 900. Um, so I, I think I would encourage them to, you know, uh, use steroids in all those categories, get labor to give more, get Lansing uh, community to give more, continue to get big donors from Democrats in the state and out and really ramp up the low donor the lower the lower dollar uh, donor program and we'll just have so much money to make sure that we can defend this majority and build off of it so i think we can i'm looking at this map and seeing trends where we could pick up uh, at least two more seats i think in 2026 um and so i would encourage them to do that and i think they can and i'd make sure members are raising money too republicans for whatever reason as incumbents with 40 years of the majority they didn't raise money very well and the incumbents were terrible at raising money i don't know uh, what the deal with that was, but I mean, I wasn't going to help them, but uh, I, I sure was happy that they didn't. But I, if I was leader, I'd be I'd be riding those members in my caucus to make sure that they continue to raise money. All right, we don't have a lot of uh, time left here, uh, Jim, but I I did want to just touch on a couple of the races. Uh, Sam mentioned the fourth district, but in a sentence, I want you to kind of keep it to a sentence. How did these races get won? I want to start with Kristen McDonald Rivet up in Bay City. In a sentence, how did she win? 
Well, she stayed on messages uh, on issues that mattered to the people, right? She didn't talk about social um, issues that nobody were talking about. She worked hard. She raised money. And we, we out knocked doors, you know, 10 to 1 over here in that Glen. Kevin Hertel over Pam Hornberger in the 12th. Uh, Hornberger is one of the worst uh, uh, candidates. And I, I think she's a, not a very decent person either. I think it was just a great matchup. Kevin's a genuinely decent human being. And I will not say the same for his opponent. That's the only person I'll say that about. I I just find her to be a real, uh, I'll stop there. Uh, my my mother taught me not to say, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. So I will say nothing about Pam Hornberger. Veronica Kleinfeld against Senator Michael McDonald in the 11th. Yeah, we ended up, we ended up kicking his butt. Um, and she was a perfect candidate for that district. Um, she is Macomb all the way. And that's not a negative. I mean, I'm, I'm Flynn all the way. Um, she just fits the district like a T. Uh, our messaging was very strong. They were not pre- they were not prepared uh, for the negative on McDonald, and it just crucified him, and we we won. And then the last one that I'll mention: Sue Shank in the fourteenth uh, district. Yeah, I mean, she was just the perfect candidate. Um, it's she was the chair of the county board in Washtenaw. She's got a farming background. I mean, you couldn't have found a better candidate. And I didn't. I don't even remember the name of their person. And that was just a we just trounced him from from, from start to finish. And we, and we came close in the grand. The grand ran a perfect race. I mean, literally, I have no complaints about it. He, he, he knocked more doors than anybody ever met. He raised crazy money. Hyzinga's is popular. I said that to him on the floor. I said, man, why are you? Basically, I was like, man, why are you so damn popular? <laughs> it's, it's that name. It's that Dutch name, yes, I tell I know. you. They like those. Yeah, yeah. they yeah. do. I have to find a Dutch name for the grand next time, and maybe we can, we can take them out. It was only 405 votes. We were close, but we'll, uh, we will not stop at that. We're going we're gonna to keep chipping away at that one. Van Legrand or something like that. Van Grand. How about that? Yeah, Van Grand. Grand, Van Grand, then he might have won. There we go. I'll try it. (laughs) Whatever it takes. And then uh, any regrets on not spending more on uh, the Padma Koopa race? Uh, That's one you might have won, maybe. Yeah, I mean, you you, you have a finite amount of resources. You have our polling was always suggesting it would be close, but it was going to be tough to win. And, uh, you know, she just wasn't as responsive um, with working with us. She kind of had her own plan, and uh, we we went where we thought we could win. Uh, I, I I don't have a lot of regrets. No, I mean I I think we did the we did what we needed to do. Uh, we can't, we got the majority. Uh, obviously, one more seat would have been great, but or two more seats. But we just we just didn't have the we we just we did what we had to do, and that our plan worked well. Jim Ananick, the uh, Senate Minority Leader, and uh, have you used all twelve years? Are you are you done now? I had it well actually before terms I had before the term limits reform I had a term in the house but now I don't so I'm I wasn't going to use it either way but uh uh you know I'm I'm now officially I'm done my my time is up <laughs> Thank you so much I'm glad your time is not up with us but uh unfortunately the time for today is up with us so thank you very much for it Jim Annick Senate Minority Leader Thanks a lot guys I appreciate it Joining us now on the podcast is Mike Leif. He is the CEO and co-founder of Zero Eyes and the superintendent for Vassar, Dr. Dot Blackwell. Thank you both for joining us on the podcast. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, there has been a lot of attention on school security right now um, across the country. And Mike, you recently gave a presentation to the Senate Appropriations Committee 
uh, regarding zero eyes. Tell our listeners a bit about your technology. Yeah, so Zero Eyes, we're a video analytics company. We use uh, computer vision models over existing security cameras to detect guns. And so when a gun is detected, you send an alert out to local staff and security and simultaneously it goes to the local 911. So now people have a picture of what that individual looks like, what type of weapon they have, and it geolocates them on a map. So we can really focus on decreasing response times and providing actionable intel to first responders. But ideally, in a perfect world, stopping it, stopping a shooting before anyone is hurt. It's really about saving time, saving lives. Okay, so this is not your cameras. This is cameras that are already in the school, and your technology is able to detect a sign of a gun. Um, now, what if, uh, I mean, schools could already kind of do this, couldn't they? They could kind of just eyeball their own security video. Why do they need zero eyes? Camera, everywhere you go now has security cameras in place, but the they're only good for after something happens. People use them basically for forensic evidence. Like there was a fight or God forbid, there was a school shooting or something was broken into and stolen. They go back and look at the, the tapes, uh, the video recordings post event. So now we're taking these security cameras and making them proactive. They never fall asleep. They're not looking at their phone. They're not checking Facebook. It's consistently scanning all the security cameras at once to detect a gun. So when that gun is detected, we can send that alert out and get people to safety and then direct the first responders with that actual intel right to where the threat is to stop it before any more lives are hurt. So are there other states where there is an appropriation for zero eye services? We're working on it in uh, multiple states as we speak. So that, that, that focus really didn't come into play until post COVID. And as everyone's aware, working with the government anywhere from a state, local, or even federal level takes a lot of time. And so we started focusing on that this past year uh, and we've been gaining significant headway in, in multiple states. So just for some reiteration how- for our listeners, I mean, what type of appropriation are you advocating for? What will it look like? Yeah, so we're, we're looking for the states to fund schools to help them with school security so they can put in proactive measures. Doesn't have to be zero. I, there's, there's multiple types of products out there because good security comes in multiple layers, but give this available to schools so they have the funding to put this in place. And then so that the educators can focus on educating and get away from focusing on school security. It's, it's an unfortunate it- world we live in right now. Is it just schools that you're you're, you're looking to to use zero eyes in? Are there other venues? And I guess could you also speak to how do you how do you actually identify a gun versus a lump in a coat? Go there for our listeners a little bit. The um, so we don't just focus. We started the company to focus on schools to give you an idea of how the company was founded. Um, I spent over ten years in the military in the Navy SEAL teams, uh, and my co-founders also came from the SEAL teams. I left left active duty in 2013. Uh, to spend more time with my own children and family because I was constantly away. Um, went to go back to school to get my master's, fast forward a little bit, and I just got tired of seeing school shootings on the news every week. Because if you think about it, you go back to ni- 1999 when Columbine happened. I was a senior in high school, and everyone was like, never again. We're going to change this. Nothing has changed, and it's only gotten worse since 1999. And everyone keeps spitting out the same rhetoric around how they're going to stop it. And so me and my co-founders got together and we started banging our heads like, how do we do something that could to shift the timeline and get first responders there sooner? So we came up with the idea zero wise. It was right after the Parkland school shooting. And then my daughter was in middle school at the time. 
her school started doing lockdown drills, also known as active shooter drills. And she came really upset. She was like, Dad, are they going to come and shoot my school like there are to these other schools? And I was like, this is absurd. So we started Zero Wise. It started for schools, and that's what our focus is, and we'll consistently focus on schools and protect our, uh, the children of the United States. Uh, but it just morphed into going into uh, corporate campuses, commercial. We started going into military bases. Because you look at active shooters, it happens in places of worship, happens at shopping malls, it happens at hospitals, it ha- everywhere. And it's an unfortunate world we live in. I forget the second question now because I got so focused on the first. <laughs> oh, how do we detect it? Yep. So uh, we don't detect concealed weapons that are underneath closing. It could be partially concealed. And the most simplest form of what we tell people is if you're standing there looking at a security camera feed on a monitor and you were and a human is like, oh, yes, that is a weapon. That is a gun. We will also detect that uh, without getting into like real falling down a rabbit hole of technical speak. Mm-hmm. It just makes sense on a school on a school grounds, because in, like in Michigan, they're, they're gun free zones. But like in a military base, it seems like that'd be really kind of hard. Uh, that's why we put a human in a loop and we have monitoring stations. Um, okay. And gun-free zones, uh, I mean, uh, as great as they sound, we, we just put an article about this not too too long ago, but uh, there's more gun violence on gun-free zones than there is in places where you're allowed to have a gun, which is absurd. Um, so more proactive solutions need to come out to the market. Well, let's bring in um, Dorothy uh, or Dot Blackwell right now. Um, as the superintendent of Vassar, tell us about your experience with Zero Eyes. Um, as you know, here in Vassar, we're only located about 45 minutes away from Oxford. And so we felt that very close to us. Um, and it actually impacted our county. We actually had to close school down because of the threats that were happening. So we were very interested in something that was exactly as Mike described, proactive. That's the difference with zero eyes and how you can see it. We have a hundred cameras here in our district. Zero eyes came in and did an analysis and worked very closely with my IT and my camera folks and determined the 70 cameras that would be the best placement of zero eyes, which is an an AI that is basically layered on top of our existing cameras. Another thing Mike made a point of, which is extremely important, I do not have the staffing to have someone sit there 24 seven and monitor this, but they do. And they have experts that are monitoring it. So what I found very interesting, once we were in the uh, implementation and we were putting all of the equipment together, I started getting live feeds of everything that looked like a gun, broomsticks, different types of backpacks, uh, different types of lunch boxes. And there's a little box that's drawn and that's been sent to somebody at their location that's making a determination right then and there, is this potentially a weapon? And I saw hundreds of shots that were going through my phone and I was like, unbelievable how many detections they were able to sort of work out during their implementation stage to see exactly what's happening. Um, and to, for my board, that meant su- such a great m- amount of relief that we were able to finally tell our community, we're doing something proactive, saving precious minutes ahead of time to stop something from happening. So we've been very pleased with Zero Eyes. Now, Dot, how did your district fund this? Was there a millage proposal or was it um, just some extra room in the budget? 
Well, actually, um, we're very active in grant writing. So the Michigan State Police had a competitive grant, as well as there's a federal, what they call COPS grant, um, that stops school violence. So we actually, I wrote for both of those grants, and we were successful for the second grant. Um, And this happened sort of simultaneously. The state also dedicated some funding for each district to use towards security. Zero Eyes is just one option. There's, you know, thousands of different options. So we were able to piecemeal together um, grant funds. So we're not using any of our general funding. We're not using millage. We're using pure grant funds to pay for our service. Talk about the advantage of wanting to put this in the state budget. Uh, Is it necessary for the state to get involved or should local communities be paying for this? No, I think this is something that the the, the site the state should get involved with. Um, it makes it much easier to not have to c- constantly generate funds through grants. Um, I spend so much time trying to get resources. And with services like this, it's not a one and done. You have to continue to purchase that service because they do have that military expertise watching, law enforcement expertise watching. So it's something that my um, $12 million budget cannot handle. And then talking about zero eyes, um, how can you guys just conceivably watch every school district in the state if you were to get this kind of funding? Um, do you have the, the resources and the people who are going to be able to um, branch out to such a wide uh, network of schools? Yes, uh, absolutely. So we, it, it's really based on our technology and the effectiveness of our computer vision model for detecting guns, which we consistently update. And it just gets leaps and bounds better and better every release we have, which is about once a quarter, we release a new computer vision model. Um, and so w- we look at it w- with the human in a loop monitoring, very scalable because of given the effectiveness of the computer vision model and the false positive rate of how many camera feeds one monitoring person can handle. Uh, we don't look at live security camera feeds. The only time they look at anything in our monitoring stations, it's an alert. It's just a keyframe image from a video feed where the computer vision model, the zero eyes technologies thought it's, it thinks it detects a gun and that a human just sits there and says, Nope, not a gun, false positive, And then goes away. If it's real, then they dispatch that. And that's when it goes to the local staff and security and the 911 center. Now, what is the dollar sign of the appropriation you're advocating for in Michigan? Uh, so it, it, it's, it's based on the, all the public schools, and it was 50 cameras per public school and there's some charter on private schools in there too. So it would be $250 million over five years to do all the schools in Michigan at 50 cameras per school. It's a fascinating topic. You know, my final question would be, I mean, we're kind of anticipating a very uneventful lame duck period for the end of the year. Um, is this something that you want to see a supplemental for ASAP or, you know, can this wait until the next budget season? Uh, that's up to the Michigan people. I personally think everyone should be doing something now. If everyone looks at gun violence across the United States, not just in Michigan or anywhere, it's just, it's increasing month over month, week over week. And it's very unfortunate. You see how many schools are constantly getting hit with active shooter threats and it's disrupting the education of our students. It's time to do something now. Everyone's been talking about doing something since Columbine 1999. And like I said earlier, it's the same rhetoric over and over. Politicians keep coming out saying the same thing, and nothing has changed. It's time to take action. All right. Well, we'll pay attention to the legislature, and obviously this is a subject that we're very interested in here at MERS. 
Appreciate you coming in and talking with us. Mike Layoff, CEO and founder of Zero Eyes and Dr. Dot Blackwell from Vassar, the superintendent there. Thank you so much for joining us on the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks for having me. Thank you. That's going to do it for this week's edition of the MERS Monday podcast. Thanks to Jill Elper, the lead consultant for Proposal 3, Mike Layoff from the Zero Eyes Group and uh, the superintendent from Vassar, Dot Blackwell. Appreciate uh, Senate Minority Leader Jim Ananick for joining us. And, of course, David Forsmark for kicking off this podcast. Post-production of the MERS Monday podcast is by Mark Bayshore Audio in Okemos. Special thanks to AT&T for sponsoring this and all our other podcasts. For the boss, John Rurink and Samantha Schreiber, I'm Kyle Malin. Until next week, take care. Take care.